This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Jeff Hyde, Director of Media Relations at Rand, and today we are speaking about the national anti-police protests and what this may mean for the future of policing. We have Megan Cahill, a senior policy researcher who leads our policing work from our Washington office. Hi, Megan. Hi. How are you? Hi, good, thanks. Uh, we have John Hollywood, also from our Washington office. He's a senior operations researcher and head of our Center for Quality Policing. Uh, hi, John. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? Good, thank you. Uh, Delani Woods, a quantitative analyst, is joining us from his home office in Florida. Hi, Delani. Hi, Jeff. And Bob Harrison, a veteran police officer and police chief who is now an adjunct researcher at RAND. Hi, Bob. Hi, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you, and thanks for uh, everyone for joining the call. Uh, the protests have certainly shaken things up. Policy changes that have been discussed for years are suddenly being enacted. Uh, New York and Iowa have banned chokeholds. California is thinking about it. Washington, D.C. has banned the use of tear gas, riot gear, and stun grenades on demonstrators. Some school districts are booing um, – sorry, not booing. They're booting police officers from schools. They may be booing them. Uh, at the federal level, House Democrats just passed a bill that would require all uniform federal officers to wear body cameras and would limit the military-grade equipment being shipped to state and local law enforcement. And, of course, Minneapolis is talking about going further, dismantling the police department altogether, perhaps. Uh, John, let me start with you. What does the evidence tell us about any of these fresh policy choices? Uh, do we know which may work? Sure. In general, we have a fairly solid base of evidence that we know about what works in policing and what doesn't work, but there's a lot of variation. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainties, and in general, you know, there's a, there's a lot more needs needs to be done to really understand uh, police policing dynamics. In terms of some of the specifics, you know, the biggest cases in Minneapolis, dismantling the department altogether. The biggest case similar to that is the case of Camden, New Jersey, which abolished its department some years ago, uh, replaced it, and they actually got very good results out of it to include, you know, final outcomes of, you know, overall reduced violence and crime by uh, more than 50 percent. Uh, wait, wait, wait what, what, what was different about that? Because that was not exactly getting rid of the police in any right. sense. It was different. simply it was outsourcing it to someone else. Right. So, I mean, so that is – basically reestablishing the department who is doing the policing, how the organization works, the strategy that they were doing. And then Bergen County did a lot try to try to do things to work with the community to kind of figure out how should policing work in, in Camden, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. oh, and, the, and, and it was not a slow process. I mean, this happened over a period of years. And I think the same thing will go with Minneapolis. And so a lot of this is going to be really dependent on, uh, you know, how, how different community members in Minneapolis uh, work together to figure out, you know, of, of ways to reconstitute the police department in ways that hopefully will better serve their needs. For some of these other things, in terms of body-worn cameras, there's been a lot of variable returns on body-worn cameras. Um, you know, one key thing seems to be in some cases they can be very effective in deterring attacks on officers, reducing the uses of force. It seems like, though, a main factor in that is whether or not officers need to keep their cameras on whenever they're doing law enforcement engagements uh, with the community and that they let people know that they're being recorded from the second they come up on scene. Uh, as, as one officer put it, if everybody knows in advance they're on camera, then they tend to behave a lot better. 
Whereas if an officer goes in part of an escalating situation to turn their camera on, then that can actually be seen as a strongly escalating situation that can cause things to backfire and get worse. Jelani, you've also looked at the the effort of cameras. Uh, Any more detail on that front? Yeah, most of what we've heard from the agencies that we work with is very similar, but the the cameras also put quite a strain on the agencies. They do have to have policies for uh, hanging on to that video, uh, have to have a place to store it. They have to know when they can share it with others. In some cases, it puts a strain on them for redacting out faces that shouldn't be shown if they're releasing the, the video to the public. So it's a, it is a bit of a double-edged sword. And then you see it move down the line to courts, and courts have difficulty hanging on to that uh, video in certain formats. Just to talk a little more about uh, some of the efforts that are being made right now to change the way policing is undertaken. We have Campaign Zero, uh, Eight Can't Wait. Uh, Megan, could you uh, fill us in on these efforts and what's being changed to try to address them? Sure. Uh, so there have uh, there's been some analysis, some initial analysis about policies that are used to govern use of force by police officers in specific agencies. And that uh, research has shown that um, there are a number of policies that are associated with lower uh, numbers of use of force and with officer involved shootings of civilians. Uh, There are specifically eight main policies that have been studied, and these are things like uh, preventing or um, uh, banning the use of chokeholds and certain other uh, ways of interacting with civilians and restricting civilians, Um, also coming up with a use of force continuum. So there are a number of different policies. There's There are eight that have been shown to be associated with um, fewer officer-involved shootings. And so there are there's a push now by activists to get um, police agencies to adopt these um, eight policies. One of the problems with this push is that um, it doesn't necessarily look at implementation of the policies. And so there are some agencies who could say, look, we have these policies on the books. We already have these policies implemented, but they might not be following them. And so um, it might not actually have the effect that um, the activists would like the policies to have. So it certainly is a great first step. And it certainly is bringing a lot of awareness to policies that police agencies could be using. But I think um, there's a lot of nuance to the use of these policies. And I think um we're going to need police to um, we're going to need to push police a lot more on the implementation, not just having policies on the books. Mm-hmm. Bob, what do you think about police being pushed in this way? Hey, and I'd agree. And I don't know that uh, they need to be pushed too hard. I know that there, there are numbers of discussions at the national as well as state level of uh, things that can be modified. The important issues that uh, I think sincere discussions over the disciplinary process uh, from the public how to handle officers, the transparency. I believe that uh, the police are better served as they are more transparent and less opaque, as people understand the the complexity of what happens in policing as well as its constraints. So a a number of agencies, I have chiefs who have already put out uh, infographics to show they're complying with seven and are working in the eighth. Uh, Cultural change, however, certainly is much more difficult. And I think one of the things that works against it and create some of this opaqueness are the uh, inordinate uh, number of agencies at the state, local, federal level that are more than 15,000. So we're not 
dealing with a monolith, but a bunch of small containers. And I think uh, Camden's experience not only allowed them to show a fresh face to almost to reboot or restart, but as an example of regionalization, consolidation to economies of scale and also economies of effectiveness in the public's eyes that are worth a look. Interesting. Let me ask about some of the lesser known approaches to reducing crime. Uh, For example, with community involvement, other ways of dealing with school performance, homelessness, hunger. Uh, Maybe Megan, could you talk a bit about these other approaches? Sure. I think um, that there are a number of uh, social challenges or issues that um, could be handled by agencies that are not the police. So you mentioned homelessness. That can certainly be addressed by social service agencies um, without police involvement. Also looking at truancy and um, school performance, which can also help uh, reduce future delinquency and even criminal activity. Um, but also a lot of prevention programs can be put into place uh, that can, you know, be that can work with early elementary school children and can be um, very effective in terms of preventing future delinquency and future criminality. Um, but the flip side of that is that police don't have to be excluded and police can certainly be part of the team. They don't necessarily have to lead these efforts, but there are a number of real comprehensive um, approaches or solutions that um, involve the police and other agencies, whether they're city agencies or social service providers who are, you know, not uh, government agencies. So I think that the key is bringing in, is not necessarily excluding the police, but it's sort of bringing others into the fold to help fully address um, sort of the multitude of problems that may be facing citizens in in a um, city. I think you're doing some work on this front in New York City right now, aren't you? Yes, we have an evaluation of um, NYPD's neighborhood police effort, which is really trying to take a problem-solving approach to um, helping citizens and to reducing crime in all neighborhoods in New York City. Bob, maybe you could talk a bit about uh, some of these functions and who should be handling them, if it's police or someone else, and any other experience you've had with community partnerships. Sure. I'm, I'm, uh, as Megan knows and others, I'm, I'm a big supporter of the, the community based approach. I think that, uh, as in politics, all policing is local and necessary ingredient of that is gaining the confidence of the community as we try to protect them, give us, give them a sense of public safety, uh, both on the streets as well as inside homes. From the police perspective, uh, mental health issues as well as drug use, drug abuse issues are, are key uh, preconditions to criminal behavior in many instances that the police are not trained or oriented to be mental health inter- interventionists per se, other than through ad hoc training for crisis intervention or domestic violence that those may be better served by community-based approaches, uh, by professionals in mental health and social services, dealing with the preconditions uh, rather than the symptoms uh, to work on both chronic and uh, acute mental health, to think about the preconditions to homelessness and working on those in collaboration with the police, but not necessarily led by the police, I think would help clear away some of the issues that become the most contentious and most difficult for the police themselves. One of the phrases we hear a lot right now is about defunding the police. 
and it seems to go hand in hand with the extent to which police are taking on some of these other responsibilities. Delani, maybe you could uh, start by telling us what that phrase means and how police are reacting to it. Yeah, it's a it's a rather new phrase, so it's hard to to put a, a definition that everybody would agree to. Uh, I think some people have been uh, interested in abolishing police agencies entirely. I don't know if that's the Camden model or, or something else. Uh, others have talked about uh, removing different functions, kind of like Bob was just discussing, maybe uh, less focus on mental health or less focus on homelessness or allow other agencies that are better prepared to do that, uh, to do those functions, actually handle those functions. Uh, I've been surprised recently as I've, I've heard uh, police executives talk about uh, or respond to questions about defunding police. The number of them have been interested in handing off those functions that historically weren't theirs. Historically, uh, police weren't handling mental health issues, acute mental health issues, and weren't handling the homelessness issues like they are now. Uh, and a number of them, number of them have been willing to trade a certain number of officers or some funding in order to uh, allow the uh, the government to to focus uh, more on. Uh, on homelessness or mental health and allow the police to focus less on it. Bob, do you figure the LA County Sheriff would be happy to uh, make that trade? <laughs> Can't speak for any particular uh, executive. I would say that we dedicate such a significant amount of resources to mental health related issues that the acute mental health crises quite often result in adverse outcomes for the police. And that if uh, the homeless outreach teams could be more of a collaborative and less of a police-focused effort, we're, we're already spending significant amounts of money on those issues. If they were diverted and directed to community-based collaboratives, to professional collaboratives, I think not only would the police be better off, the certainly people who they come in contact with would be. Does that, what Bob just described, uh, Megan, does that meet your definition of defund the police? Yeah, I think that I think really in the in the current context, defund the police means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I think what Delani said is correct that originally it was used to actually mean abolish the police, but now it's it's sort of being used to mean a wide range of things. And I think certainly what Bob said is correct in terms of how the police can work with other professionals in order to better address the issues and to address a lot of the preconditions. Um, so yeah. Another uh, charge that we're hearing is about systemic racism in policing. I wonder if one of you could uh, define what that means to you and and, and where you think we stand uh, on that issue. Sure, uh, I'll go ahead and take that one. I mean, I think one of the things that has actually been hampering the the public debate is disagreement and, and how that term is being interpreted. So, for example, when I've been hearing uh, police executives, current and former, being interviewed about the, you know, whether systemic discrimination exists, they've tended to make it pretty clear that they're interpreting the charge of systemic racism as the charge that officers are systemically white supremacists or they're systemically members of you know, various Klan or neo-Nazi organizations or that they're actively involved in enforcing laws intended to support racial suppression. Um, 
the the other definition i think the the one that is really being much more widely used certainly by by the the critics of police is this idea of you know we've known for decades that there are major disparities in different public safety outcomes. You know, we start with the one that's been heard about disparities that African Americans are shot and killed twice as often or more by police uh, than whites. However, there's also disparities in terms of non-lethal uses of force, uh, rates at which they're victim, rates at which that, those communities are victims of violence, uh, being able to to solve homicides and other major crimes that for which African Americans are victims, um, you know certainly one thread that is that that has led into policing, unfortunately was you know was the development of slave patrols um, and other you know other historic things that were intended in terms of various forms of racial suppression. Uh, and actually, a few years ago, the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police actually apologized on behalf of the policing profession mm-hmm. for policing's historic involvement in racial suppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, the president then went on to say that it is not fair to blame our officers today, especially our newer officers who've never been involved in, in de jure racial suppression. I, I wanted to say I, I, I think that um, the term systemic racism is accurate in the sense that it implies that there is an entire system that has been set up to um, maintain racist policies. So if you look at a lot of policies, um, a lot of laws and statutes, they are set up to be, you know, to have harsher um, punishments for certain things that minority communities are more likely to be mm-hmm. involved in. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about the the difference in the punishments for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine in the 90s. Yes. Um, and so I think that there's, I think that Bob is certainly correct. I think we need to make sure that um, in order to to have police be willing to make changes that are necessary. We need them to understand that when we say systemic racism, we don't mean that individuals are racist. We mean they are working within a system that has been set up in many ways to just perpetuate um, racist policies and racist approaches to policing that have existed for you know, centuries. And I would also argue that that systemic racism carries out throughout the entire criminal justice systems. You know, we certainly don't want to alienate police by saying that they are racist. So, um, and certainly I think it is the case that many cops aren't racist. Um, And so I think we need to keep that in mind as well. Yeah, and, and I agree. I think, you know, framed in the larger, the impacts on systems, uh, had Megan not mentioned it, the disparate sentencing of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, uh, issues of prosecution, the length of punishment, uh, et cetera. I think police have been, for the last seven to 10 years, especially starting to really grapple with implicit bias and police conduct and, and the manner in which communities are treated, all of which I think is taking us toward uh, solutions, uh, at least possible ways to address the issues of systemic racism and criminal justice that will give communities, uh, I think, a much greater sense of confidence, which I think, by and large, the police should strive to have anyone who needs their service or calls their service to have a confidence that this is a person that will solve the problem, that will care about their issue and treat them with both equality and equity. I think we will shift to what's missing. Uh, 
we've talked about, we've identified a few gaps already in terms of evidence about what works and what doesn't work. But what what else uh, don't we know? If if someone can address that oxymoron, perhaps uh, John. Sure. So I think one of the things that's been interesting in what we don't know, you know, we've been doing for a number of years, inviting in expert panels for the Department of Justice of practitioners and researchers to identify their science and technology needs. And one of the things that's been most striking in what we don't know has been we need better strategies. We need better management. We need help with doing change management. We need help changing mm. the culture. And so I'd say half or more depending on you know which panel we talk to are in things that you don't necessarily think of as classic science and technology related needs because the demand for newer ways of doing things mm-hmm. um, you know newer ways of management recruiting of uh, again culture shifts have have really been kind of the main story since we've been doing this for the past 5 or 6 years one of the problems is that we don't know what we don't know because there are huge gaps in data collection. So um, there's huge gaps in data collection for a lot of different police activities, but even just, you know, focusing on uh, the current issues, the current things that have risen to the top of the conversation with police use of force. There's a lot that we don't know about, um, you know, how much force is being used and how frequently and against, against which types of civilians and you know, what were the civilians doing that led to force being mm-hmm. used on them? And so, um, you know, there's just a whole range of um, features of these use of force events that we don't have a good handle on. And I think having a much better handle on that would help us craft better policies and also even help us research policies that already are in place to see what their effectiveness is. Because, um, this lack of data makes it very hard for us to do any kind of rigorous research on policies that are being implemented. Mm-hmm. So I would say the data is, is sort of the biggest gap that I that I would identify in this issue. Yeah, I, I would think uh, that uh, exactly correct, that uh, there's so little out there that is consistent. Uh, Washington Post keeps a database on officer-involved shootings that has general reliability, but not any statistical or data reliability. Uh, the FBI gathers information on law enforcement officers assaulted or killed, but the the depth necessary to really get into what are the preconditions, uh, the, the thin slicing of the officer, what they recognized, how they responded. Uh, there have been numbers of generations of force options, necessary force options, de-escalation and others, and quite often People are grasping. It's uh, these are decisions made on perhaps judgment and intuition without necessarily having to be data informed, which is a, a significant gap. I, I just want to jump on that bandwagon too. I, I, data is sort of my life these days, and uh, I do think that having the the information uh, at all levels, at local levels, would allow uh, police leaders and managers to make better decisions and compare and contrast themselves and their policies to other agencies, and then having that information uh, at higher levels for researchers to, to find larger patterns and, and communicate that to policymakers who then could modify uh, laws and, and, and broader policies. Uh, we, we certainly, I mean, policing is not unique in this. There's, there's government uh, agencies of all types that have uh, really bad data on which they have to make decisions, but, but policing is certainly suffering uh, from that right now. 
Jelani, uh, beyond data, uh, there you, you talked earlier about body cameras. Are there, are there other technologies that could be helping address some of the concerns that are being expressed right now about policing? John kind of divided uh, the the world of, of technologies that we looked at, you know, technology in big air quotes, in, into two big categories, those that are uh, maybe not your traditional hardware and, and those that are. There's, there's certainly a, a desire uh, for police, depending on what, what you, they're uh, trying to improve. If they're trying to improve, improve officer safety, then they want uh, better body armor and maybe even uh, the, the type of armor, I'm going to call it armor, that uh, a body camera uh, provides. In other words, it, it, if you're holding a body camera, you're wearing a body camera, uh, people will behave differently when they know they're being filmed. So those are those are some hardware things that uh, people might be interested in. Less interesting uh, types of technologies, just better record-keeping systems. So uh, over the last several decades, police have been moving from paper records to uh, electronic record systems. There's uh, large collections of records out there that could be uh, turned into data that could be used for decision-making, but a lot of that is locked up in uh, very difficult to to export or to or to communicate. Or communicate is not the word I want. Very di- di- difficult to... Um, Transmit and and share, uh, interconnect. In other words, if Mm -hmm. I've got a system and you've got a system, I want to be able to uh, share what my system knows with your system uh, so that we can get information out. What about facial recognition? Uh, We see recently Amazon cutting off police from facial recognition uh, technology. What's your uh, view of how that can or should be used? Yeah, along with John, we we looked at some of the video analytics needs for uh, law enforcement, and uh, I mean, I do think that facial recognition will have a role one day. It, it really just automates what we're doing uh, in person, but until it can do it reliably, uh, I do think that it's it's uh, important for law enforcement and the, the the companies that are providing these technologies to to sort of draw back a little bit until we uh, are confident that uh, it's not going to introduce bias uh, that, or, or, uh, or even make worse the biases that are already there. So that, that would be my, my first take on, on uh, facial recognition. Yeah. John? I'd say, if I can add on that, in addition to the technology performance itself, there's also we need to have a good understanding of how we're actually going to use facial recognition and other, quote, surveillance technologies, unquote. You know, I think one of the biggest issues that I've seen in terms of agencies getting into trouble with new technologies is when they just use new technologies to collect huge amounts of data without any real sense of what they're going to do with it other than, well, we're going to use it to do something that will involve catching bad guys or some other kinds of threats to protect the public. And we don't really have much in the way of cybersecurity protections on it or control policies on how we're going to control who has access to it. But, wow, we're going to do great things. There's actually an example of facial recognition uh, in, believe, in the United Kingdom where a company used facial recognition to just take huge numbers of photos of people walking to, I believe, the King's Cross station and you know walking through a mall to get to king's cross and they didn't really ever do anything with it other than at some point they're going to use it to find use facial recognition to find the the terrorists and other offenders in the data and even then it just all kind of sat there in their data set let me add on to that i mean there, so there's certainly a, a 
pol- definitely we need policies to govern how these technologies are used. Another thing we need are standards to decide when new technologies, not just facial recognition, but any uh, of these automated analytic technologies, uh, when is it appropriate to use them? Uh, how are we uh, ensuring that the the algorithms that they're based on are fair and unbiased and are, are um, uh, can be? How can we manage the algorithm itself? Is it transparent enough to uh, for the an outside organization? to uh, look at and evaluate. Yeah, and I think the police will because inevitably most crime is investigated retrospectively. So that will be the lever that gives them the impetus, as John described, to gather all sorts of data because you never know what might be useful after the fact or as you realize something happened. Uh, and again, to you know, to echo Delaney in some sense, the use of stingrays by the police to scrape cell data is something that uh, police had a capacity and just started using with very little policy guidance. Stingrays? They essentially, you could set up a surveillance where you can scrape cell phone data from a specific location uh, to see if, you know who's on the phone and what number they have and all sorts of interesting intrusions into personal privacy and did so in many times in good faith to try to serve a noble purpose, but that, that actually gets into the noble cause corruption to you know, do something because we want to have a good end, but not thinking about all, all of the implications in route, all the violations, potential violations to personal privacy. Uh, let me ask about some individual police departments we have looked at. Uh, we, we've done a lot of work around the country, not only New York, but also Minneapolis, Chicago, Cincinnati, L.A. Uh, Megan, uh, you have some work going on in Minneapolis. Uh, maybe it's too soon for any lessons learned, but can you fill us in? Uh, yeah, we have a grant from the National Institute of Justice right now uh, to look at sustained levels of violence in communities. And uh, the areas that we're looking at is Minneapolis. We're also looking at Durham, North Carolina as another site. Um, and those are um, good sites for a number of reasons for comparison. Um, but um, it is an area that we're looking at and, and looking at kind of the role of police in um, levels of violence and how they help or hinder efforts to reduce violence um, as so um, it is too early for me to say to give any um, real firm conclusions, but um, it certainly is a very interesting time to be doing this work in Minneapolis. And it was pre-existing work before the current events um, happened, but they're certainly going to play into the, our results and our conclusions about what's going on there. What about Chicago? Uh, Dulani and John, I know you've also worked on this. Sure. Um, John and I both took a look. John led the project, uh, but we both took a look at uh, how Chicago is implementing real-time crime centers, what they would call strategic decision support centers. And so they brought a number of technologies together, uh, one of which is uh, cameras, shot spotter, which is a uh, a system of microphones that can uh, locate where uh, a gunshot might have occurred. uh, And they paired that with... uh, a small um, district-level center where analysts and, and people can observe the cameras, use them for uh, supporting police in the field, uh, identifying crimes. Uh, and uh, what we found was that they, those technologies and that, that uh, system that they set up did have uh, an impact on um, crime in the area and, and contributed to reducing, poli- uh, reducing crime um, in, that, in the areas where they were uh, implemented. John or Bob, did you want to weigh on this? 
Yeah, sure. And I think one of the things that really came out of it, again, the importance of process in addition to technology, mm-hmm. is just the fact of having these daily meetings and having analysts who on 24-hour cycles were collecting information and displaying information so that allowed commanders and others in, in, the, in, the, uh, uh, in the division to look at what was going on in, in their district and making decisions to respond to what had just happened was something that was very valuable. Because otherwise, at Comstat, they were doing uh, preparations for how they had responded to crimes that had occurred a month ago or more. What was your reference to Comstat? Oh, so Comstat stands for for Computerized Statistics, uh, pioneered in New York, is the idea of systematically collecting data, most typically on major crimes that have happened in the past month or up to a quarter. And then holding meetings where you would bring in the commanders and others from the districts or precincts to talk about and basically review the review what had happened in the district, and then review what the department was doing or had done to to address those particular items. Um, said in this case, in comparison, the the, the drawback uh, in comparison to what they're doing is, is that is much longer look in the past. So you so one of the the criticisms is that you, as a commander you could get questioned for a robbery or homicide that had happened six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and I do think strongly that the closer you can get data into real time to the people in the field, people who direct policing, the more effective the police can be to, to recognize and address issues or areas where problems exist, uh, people who may be wanted to see the crime trends. I know we're still ramping from comp stat to real-time crime towards the data dashboard in the field from the officers so you don't have to wait for a shift briefing or someone to tell you something but can query what are auto thefts like time of day, day of week, where can I go where people want police visibility, where can we go where you have the most complaints from the public. Uh, it would be and continues to be a boon too. It's only one half of the coin, engaging the community, gaining confidence, but if the police are there solving problems and addressing concerns the community has in a much more effective way. I think that's a, a good precondition to go where we're going with this uh, with this discussion. Good. Megan? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add on to that um, in the way that um, CompStat is evolving in a number of places, and it kind of builds on what Bob was saying about, you know, what are police doing in different places and how are we analyzing that? So in our uh, research on NYPD's neighborhood policing, we have seen that they have um, changed sort of their focus of CompStat, and they're bringing in a lot of different measures, measures of, you know, how many community contacts do you have and uh, what are the problem-solving efforts that you're making. And so um, CompStat, you know, as it was originally conceived is, you know, how John described it, focusing on major crimes, it could be really delayed. Um, but a number of agencies now are using it in different ways and trying to incorporate different types of measures, measures of their relationship with the community. And so um, I just wanted to mention that it, that it's evolving in a number of different cities and in different ways. All right. We're about out of time. I think what we'll do is uh, ask each of you, who, who are game at least, to uh, uh, to opine about where, where's the conversation going to move from here. Uh, do you have any advice for policymakers or police or protesters? I'll go first. Uh, get it out of the way. Uh, 
I think that uh, from the police perspective, the police should uh, find this as an opportunity to close distance with. I mean, people are demanding change. So it, it gives the police a natural opportunity to engage those uh, they perhaps have been holding at distance to start a conversation. I think, uh, and echoing Megan, it isn't so much counting crime stats or response times, but police will generally do what the agency considers important. They do so through data collection quite often. If they collect data, uh, both quantitative and qualitative, community uh, confidence surveys, as well as the frequency of contacts, the non-enforcement contacts, things that, that are important to help build that bond, that's a starting point. And to the lag in the system uh, from a police perspective is random patrol, undirected time where officers can kind of wander around under the theory of you know finding things. I think we can give them much greater focus and greater direction to do the kinds of things that can not only build confidence, but ensure public safety. Very good. Jelani? I, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd echo Bob in a, in a very similar way. I, I think police now have an opportunity to um, sit around a very large table uh, with policymakers in the public and, and bring to the table, this is what you have asked us to do. These are the resources that you've asked us to do it with. Uh, and let's talk about how you want us to get from uh, where where we are to where you want to be, um, and that would that might give the police the opportunity to hand off these things like uh, homelessness uh, responses, maybe hand off things like responses to uh, acute um, mental health events. Um, so just just a real opportunity for a larger conversation for both educating the public, educating policymakers, and then maybe reshaping uh, what's on their plate. You're presuming that the police will be at the table. Absolutely. I would think okay. police would have to be at the table. They may have to fight to get to the table, right, Bob? They, uh, yes. Uh, I, I think that uh, an empathy for, they're going to have to not only be at the table, they're going to have to demonstrate uh, visual leadership in sincerely listening and having empathy for people who have been at distance from them historically into present day. So uh, that's part of the work in terms of talking with police agencies now. It is acknowledging the past as well as the present. John? Uh, sh sure. I just wanted to say that I think, again, this idea is opportunity. We haven't talked a lot about statistics and some of these better performing interventions and strategies, but we are looking at you know repeated instances of being able to get 30, 40, even 50% drops in crime or, or improvements in other key measures. So, I mean, there, I think there really is an opportunity to systematically change and improve the way that policing is done. I mean, imagine if, if we had under 10,000 homicides a year in the U.S. Imagine if we had half the number of people who were um, killed in officer-involved shootings or other, other lethal uses of force. Imagine in terms of officers, specifically that would mean, you know, 25 to 50 fewer officers killed per year in the line of duty. You know, these are things, certainly they stretch goals, yes, but I do think that we can get there. I think this is a, this is a unique opportunity, and I hope we deal take those opportunities in general as well as to start addressing some of the major disparities that we have. Megan, can you play Paul McCartney to uh, John's John Lennon? <laughs> I don't know if I could do that, but I will say, uh, you know, I noticed that John and Dulani and Bob all um, kind of talking sort of big, large, you know, ideas or bigger ideas, bigger picture. And I think my 
my thoughts, my immediate thoughts about where we're going and what we need to pay attention to is transparency. That to me, that's like the key word that we need to sort of push. We need transparency on all sides and, you know, from where the barriers exist with police unions and, you know, police disciplinary um, actions and, you know, what is, you know, what's going on behind the curtain. I think we, I think we need to sort of air some of that out before we can make any progress. So that's, that's sort of my, my key word for now. Fantastic. Megan, Bob, John, Delaney, thanks very much. Great. Thank you, Joe. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.